The following episode of the Movie Club podcast can and will contain spoilers. Please be aware of this before you listen. Thank you. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Movie Club podcast. This is the sixth episode of the Movie Club podcast. Uh, this month, we're looking at Bruce McDonald's Roadkill and um, Russ Meyer's Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. Uh, so I guess we'll just uh, quickly go around the table and let everyone introduce themselves. Uh, I'll start off with uh, myself. I'm Sean from FilmJunk.com. I'm Kurt from Twitch Film and Row 3. I am Jay from FilmJunk.com and the Documentary Blog. And I'm Andrew from Row 3 and Movie Patron. And it's kind of unfortunate because our, uh, our, our friend Marina was not able to make it for this uh, particular episode. And uh, it's funny because these movies are very uh, female-centric movies. Well, one of them was her pick, too, wasn't it? Wasn't Faster so. Pussycat Kill Kill? Yeah. Hers? Yeah. Um, so uh, I guess we'll uh, we'll start things off maybe with Roadkill. I- I'm guessing we'll have more to say about Faster Pussycat, but I, I don't know. Um, so Roadkill uh, came out '89. Uh, was it '89 or '90? Because I've seen some places reference '90, but I think it played TIFF in '89. But I think it came out in '90 as a commercial release. Okay, and so this was Bruce McDonald's first film, um, and I I haven't seen too many of his other films i you know i guess we mentioned last on the last show hardcore logo probably his most well-known to date although uh, i'm guessing the tracy fragments may become uh his most well-known eventually yeah i i well i mean hardcore logo got a big push or at least some push from quentin tarantino i think right, he put right. it out on his uh, rolling thunder label before that label went it's up and i and i think at one point he was going to cast um uh hugh dillon in kill bill but he didn't hugh dillon is the star of hardcore logo but um yeah, so i think in the states that would be his biggest movie but ellen page stars in tracy fragments and it's a very good movie and it's just getting a cinema release down in the states now so maybe if it catches some traction down there but either way i don't think he's a very known he, in canada he is to some degree in the sense that how much canadians actually know their own cinema which isn't that high to begin with but right but yeah, yeah actually as the, lone, as the lone american here um or guy from the united states i i hadn't heard of him until kurt and i had started to chat a little bit about movies so i, I darn down here i don't think anybody knows who this guy is well it's gonna be interesting to get your opinion on this movie because i mean i think for me watching it obviously it's a very canadian movie it takes place in canada lots of northern uh ontario locations um some pretty nice canadian accents too i think in this one yeah um so i i don't know does anybody want to give sort of like a quick little uh synopsis or um i don't don't know if that's i i can do that um Basically, it's a it's a rock and road film, uh, and uh, it it like many films, it uses driving or learning how to drive as a metaphor for learning how to cope with life. So it follows a woman, fairly timid woman that works for a record producer. She's sent up from Toronto to Northern Ontario to find a punk band, the Children of Paradise, who have started missing tour dates uh, and no one knows where they are. And so they have one final show in Thunder Bay and she's supposed to find them and rein them in and uh, bring them back to Toronto so that they can be chastised by their mousy looking record producer. Uh, But of course, along the way, like most road movies, whether it be something like Into the Wild or... um, I don't know, uh, any other, even Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. There's just a bunch of vignettes. She meets up with a lot of people, spends a little bit of time with a collection of people, and all those people culminate at the end. Yeah, and there's, uh, I guess, some interesting cameos, although a lot of them are Canadian cameos, I think. Um, 
but uh, obviously Joey Ramone makes an appearance at the end, so that's uh, someone known outside of Canada for sure. Um, funny, worst actor ever. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is brutal. But the funny, funny thing about that is, uh, you know, this is a very low budget Canadian film. These guys were. It was a very fly by the seat of the pants. None of them had done any films before, um, although many of them have successful careers now. Uh, but they flew Joey Ramone up to Toronto first class. And when Joey Ramone got off the plane, apparently he said it was the first time ever <laughs> that he had flown first class. So a no budget Canadian movie <laughs> sprung enough money to fly in first class for one scene that doesn't in hindsight, doesn't really add anything. No, no. I think they thought it would when they made the film, but it, it it's like embarrassing. It, it it's, it's added actually, a picture on the back of the DVD box to sell right, copies. Yeah. He's, I guess, in, yeah. he's in Hardcore Logo as well. Um, and apparently for that, they shot it outside of his apartment. So they actually were able to go to him for that one. Maybe he, you know... A, didn't want to come back up to Canada or something. I don't know. But that appearance is even worse than his appearance in Roadkill. <laughs> the better musical cameo is Toronto's Nash the Slash, uh, who is a bit of a Toronto icon. He's been around for 30 years doing live shows. And he's when they're at the bar at one point and they're listening to the opening act for the Children of Paradise, he's the guy with the construction helmet and all the bandages off his fa- on his face. He's His entire career, he's been... Like that, I think Bruce McDonald said that one of the most fun parts of making Roadkill was that he got to see Nash the Slash without the bandages on. <laughs> actually, see I've what the guy looks like. He plays uh, uh, an electric fiddle. Um, you know, he's a very much of a live act in Toronto. Well, interesting bit of trivia too for anybody listening to this who also follows the movieblog dot com. Um, our good friend Doug Nagy, who plays the ukulele, has I don't know if he toured with. With Nash the Slash, I know he's played some shows with Nash the Slash, and um, yeah, just thought I'd throw that out there. But cool. um, yeah, that, that band was awesome. I haven't seen that before. But you know, speaking of that, like the whole soundtrack for this movie was awesome. I was surprised that they got some of the music that they did, considering the budget. I mean, they had like the Cowboy Junkies on here, and now maybe they were nobody at the time. I'm not sure. But they had. I just remember. Thinking, the, wow, this music is really good all the way through it. The two Cowboy Junkies tracks are fantastic tracks, and they totally work in in the film too. Yeah, and I think I, I recall, like I think there's uh, appearances from other sort of '90s Canadian indie rock icons. I remember seeing uh, the Leslie Spit Trio in the yeah, credits. they're the buskers, the buskers in the middle of the farm, <laughs> which right. is bizarre, but it works. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Uh, maybe, uh, do we want to throw it over to Andrew and get, uh, his impressions as an American? <laughs> uh, well, I guess I wasn't really looking at it from a Canadian slash American standpoint. I was just kind of watching it. And I think Kurt said something about like driving as a metaphor for life. And I kind of felt like the driving was also sort of a metaphor for them how they like made the movie itself you know like um it was a real rocky start and they don't really know what they're doing i mean there's a point in the movie actually where he they they kill something roadkill they hit a rabbit or something i can't remember and they hop out and 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 the director bruce mcdonald who's in the movie as a director um is like just shoot that just 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 shoot it and the guy's like why and he says well, it might mean something later. Let's just let's just shoot this. And I felt like that was exactly how he's making this movie too. Just not really a plan, just kind of a series of events, and let's shoot it and go with it and see what happens. So you know, I don't know. I didn't look at it as a Canadian American thing. But it's funny, his buddy. Guys... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say maybe you guys like recognize the landmarks or whatever. But to me, it just sort of, you know, a lot of it looked like northern Minnesota, to be honest, which is pretty <laughs> close to Canada. But, um, yeah, so I, I don't know. I didn't I didn't see a whole lot of Canadian, I don't know, puns or stereotypes or whatever in there. But Well, it's no bon cop, bad cop, but... Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
The what? Oh, the... (laughs) That sums it up right there. That is the highest grossing Canadian film of all time. It outseated Porky's, which held the record for something like 25 years. Um, It's a a French-Canadian movie, but it's set half in Toronto, half in Montreal. And it is Canadian humor. Every single minute is something that only Canadians would get. So, um, yeah, this movie's not as Canadian as that. I mean, it's just small town anywhere, like you said. Yeah. So when watching this, I, the first thing, the first movie that popped into my head as a comparison, um, I don't know if you guys felt this either, was Clerks. Now, there's obvious reasons. The black and white and low budget, first feature, totally indie. Um, and, you know, just the feeling of, you know, non-actors, uh the the director playing a part in it right um casting himself and and whatnot but the main difference i think uh was i think bruce mcdonald for for first film so it just shows how uh i mean not that clerks was horribly directed or anything but he just did so well with direction in this movie like there there is a lot of clever things in there that you can see carry on to his, his other films. Um, like visually he's, he's actually a, a really interesting director. And although I think this movie has been trumped by hardcore logo, which personally I think is the ultimate out of, you know, Canadian films, hardcore logo is what I consider my Canadian film and, and the whole documentary angle that he touches on in roadkill like he he's basically a documentary filmmaker he meets up with this girl decides to cast her in his documentary and then we get sort of pieces of you know documentary kind of footage which basically i like the way he he did it where you know suddenly a a box of light will appear on her and it's it's almost like you know you could look at it like it's the camera light being turned on but the way it's shot it almost seems more like it's the frame of what the camera is shooting like that of the light that's projected on her i found the film in general has a very high contrast like not only is it it's grainy because it's 16 millimeter blown up but um it's like pie uh darren aronofsky's first film Mm -hmm. uh where it's it's shot with really harsh lighting or, or, or very high contrast lighting. And so it's, it's not a lot of gray. It's, it's black or it's white. And mm-hmm. I, I like that, especially the scenes with, um, Don McKellar and, uh, Valerie, uh, Bergariar. I can't pronounce her last name, uh, with them in the car, there's a scene where they're just driving and the, it, the obviously they're lighting it from like the, the foot space on mm-hmm. the passenger side, but the lighting is really extreme and it's, it, it's gorgeous in its own weird way. And there's a few scenes like the scene where the, again, where Don McKellar, who's the wannabe serial killer, um, before Leslie Vernon or, or man bites dog, there was Don McKellar's ambitious serial killer, uh, in the making but there's a scene where they have like a picnic on top of the car roof in the middle of the farm and it's shot in very long shot and they're just silhouettes gorgeously shot mm-hmm. stunning scene yeah i think you, i mean you contrast that with there's there's a scene i think like in in the trailer and all the guys are having a party and it's completely dark and there's only flashlights that are that are highlighting some things and it's really chaotic and like you said there's like a circle of light Everything else is, is dark all around it, and it felt really—I don't know—to me that that part of it seemed actually kind of amateurish and and kind of annoying. But you're right; the rest of it, the outdoor shots, the the shot off the roof of the gas station, stuff like that is is gorgeous. But that that scene in the in the, with the party, it was really raw and just sort of claustrophobic and kind of annoying, actually. Well, I guess you know, there's. You know there's probably some limitations, I guess, in a, a production. Like I, I, the one thing I really like about him, which maybe isn't so noticeable in this film because it is his first film. But again, going back to hardcore logo, which is relevant because it's also a rock and roll road movie where he um, plays doc, doc a documentary filmmaker yeah. within the movie. Yeah. Um, is the, the way he shoots the road in that movie 
is so creative. Like there's this one shot where he has this rolling road, like on a roller Mm -hmm. and a toy tour bus just sitting on the top of it and it rolls the the wheels. And then you can see like the amount of miles and and cigarettes. cigarettes. (laughs) Um, And it's like, I, I watched that movie and it's totally Canadian, but it's totally like creative and it, and, and just adventurous and, you know, it, it, that movie, which is usually, which is usually the deal breaker with Canadian film because most of our film is financed through government grants and more (laughs) from an artier Avenue than a commercial Avenue. So, you know, there's certain expectations from the grant giver and um, Bruce McDonald and Don McKellar, in particular, uh, brought a commercial populist level, uh, very professional level too, but a, a much more accessible, uh, yeah, like a fist pumping element mm-hmm. to Canadian film, which was more or less always lacking. That's not to say that there hasn't been for years a dearth of great Canadian films. There have been some fantastic Canadian films. I could bore you for hours. Uh, <laughs> but this one was really fun. In itself, it didn't take itself too seriously. Uh, they were having a lot of fun with it. Um, like even the clunky metaphor, the driving metaphor, which I think is pretty clunky. They do get a lot of mileage, for lack of a better <laughs> phrase. Sorry about the bad Cigarettes. pun. Um, out of it. And uh, yeah, I, I guess we're recording really late, but I, I suggested the movie because bunnies get ran over and we were supposed to record on Easter. But that was <laughs> my... Uh, but uh, the fact that he's... You know, it's got that punk aspect of it of, you know, we're going to make a movie that hopefully people will watch and we're going to kill bunnies on screen. (laughs) I don't know why that appeals to me, but it's it's a it's a bit of a flip the bird to the audience. But at the same time, it's totally engrossing. Mm -hmm. Now, I think one thing that uh, Hardcore Logo has on this movie is the acting. That's one thing that stood out with Hardcore Logo for me is. I thought that Hugh Dillon was awesome in that movie. And I, I, he, you can see he has his limitations, but in that role, which isn't too far from his, his real life persona, career, yeah. um, he was perfect. Um, and yep. he was in another Bruce McDonald, McDonald movie called Dance Me Outside. He was also which, in the Tales of Lillian something he? or whatever, a made-for-TV film that Bruce McDonald made okay well well, in dance me outside he was he was good as well but you could see his limitations a little more in that but um the acting in hardcore logo was awesome and roadkill uh the the main uh girl in that film uh she whenever she opens her mouth is when you realize one she's canadian and and two (laughs) she's I, I, I'm, she's been in other Bruce McDonald movies, hasn't she? Wasn't well, she highway, in Highway 61? And, and there's a lot of acting. I don't think personally that she's bad in... She fits perfectly in with the aesthetic of... She's supposed to be uncomfortable. I think it's a good performance, to be honest. In But you can see in Highway 61, which they like literally finished this movie, played it at TIFF, won a couple of awards, got a commercial release... And then they started shooting Highway 61, which is another rock and road movie. So really, there's a trilogy of them capped mm-hmm. with Hardcore Logo. Uh, and again, it stars her and Don McKellar, who is also the writer. Um, and he's the serial killer actor. And for that matter, uh, he, he wrote the upcoming Fernando Millier uh, movie Blindness, uh, the science fiction movie that's coming out. Um, he's one of the best Canadian writers, like the red violin he he's done a lot of stuff um but this they went immediately into another film and i think the acting and the um was massively improved the second time around and then by the time he got the hardcore logo five years later uh everything was firing on on full Mm -hmm. cylinders and the the co-star in hardcore logo is uh callum keith rennie who if you watch canadian films in the last 10 years you see callum keith rennie in everything and he even makes he pops up in American films. He's mm-hmm. Dodd in Memento, and he's uh, one of the Cylon models in Battlestar Galactica. You see him pop up a fair bit, um, but in Canadian films, he's everywhere. He's like he's contractually obligated to be in every Canadian film. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's someone I actually could see breaking through to American films. It almost yeah. seems like he'd rather stay in Canada. But, um, yeah, I don't know what it is about her. 
I, I don't see it as an, you know, outright horrible performance, but it kind of reminds me of a lot of stuff that I'd seen in film school where there were people who were racking up their actor credits by doing, uh, you know, student films and just her, she gets, she gets the job done, but she's clearly, you know, acting, she's clearly a, a, it's, she's got this really heavy, I don't know if, am I the only one who notices her heavy accent in the way she talks? I, I didn't occur to me, but I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I don't know. I guess I just kind of assumed that went with the movie, but. Okay. Well, it, it got to me a little bit, but, um, not, not enough to, you know, ruin anything for me, but, um, yeah, I mean the, the direction in this movie, even though it's his first film, you can see, you know, the talent there and, and comparing it to something like clerks, which is meant to be more just dialogue, a vehicle for dialogue. Um, but it still makes you appreciate when, you know, you see beautifully lit shots or interesting, uh, cinematography or, or angles or, uh, even just the direction with the actors and, you know, his whole inclusion of that documentary angle at that point, because it's, it's not completely revolutionary, but it's, it was before a lot of, you know, current sort of films that take that angle. And that odd scene at the beginning where the uh, where there is a passion play walking up Queen Street, which I imagine was that not was staged. that was great. I imagine that was real. Yeah, it sets the it sets the stage beautifully. Mm-hmm. In um, it, it snapped me out of looking for the street names, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. and then like whoa, that scene really. I, I didn't recall it as strongly the first time I saw the movie, but sitting down with it again, fifteen. 16 17 years later um that scene immediately set the stage for the uh for the movie Mm -hmm. well i i just wanted to throw out like it's kind of interesting like you you kurt had mentioned that uh a lot of canadian film is kind of artsy and then this you know bruce mcdonald is kind of like pushing it a little bit to something that's a little bit more commercially acceptable i guess and then, you know, I was kind of on the fence with this in the sense that um, it reminded me a lot of a student film, but then, um, like, it, the visuals and stuff, absolutely, you, you see the talent that this guy has, and you know this is his first film. He's going to do some amazing stuff. But I think I was kind of maybe tuned into some of the stuff Jay's talking about, not specifically uh, the performance of uh, the lead actress, who I think her name is Valerie... Bhagjar or something um but i you know Bugjar. Bugjar, yes um but uh yeah i don't know like there's definitely um artsier elements to the film like it's not a linear straightforward story you know there's there's the character who's like wants to commit suicide you know things like this that you on the one hand it's like that feels like something i'd see in a student film a little too much but on the other hand, he kind of brings it together in a way that has more maturity than a student film would. So, you know, I think uh, just to just to kind of throw it out there for people who are considering watching this movie, maybe haven't seen it yet. Um, you know, it's not I wouldn't say it's 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 certainly not clerk's level of accessible. Yeah. Like it's you're still kind of and it's it's interesting. Some of the the metaphors he uses and stuff. Uh, I, I kind of like that stuff, but I think a lot of people would be like, that's kind of pretentious, but well, it's funny because I think hardcore logo actually has more of a student film ending than uh, yeah. this one. Did. It has the, it <laughs> the has ultimate student without film being ending. a huge spoiler. It has the ultimate student film yeah. and ab- absolutely true, but it oh, we're totally works. Spoilers. No, but we're spoiling a different film. And <laughs> it's a film that I'd hate to spoil for anyone. But if you know what the ultimate student film ending is, then you know how hardcore logo is. Still, it doesn't matter. I've seen mm-hmm. the movie six or seven times. It still works. And the, the he has this knack of, you know, I'm always, when watching Canadian films, it's it's hard not to be aware of the, the Canadiana surrounding it. And it, it just seems forced in, in some occasions where, you know, they had to 
you know, add that's just say it was set in this town just to get funding or, or they have, you know, uh, just everything just like bond cop, bad cop. That's one of the reasons I really haven't seen it yet. It's just cause I feel like it's going to be constant hockey jokes forced down my throat. And Greg says it's awesome, but it, no, no, here, here's the thing with bond cop, bad cop. It is, but it, it goes so far with it that it goes from bad back to good. Like they go so loopy and like they have uh, Rick Mercer playing Don Cherry. I mean, that's brilliant. And then kind of obviously lame and then back to brilliant again. It, mm-hmm. And they do this constantly. And for that matter, um, they lay on a ridiculous amount of serious violence and gore, which is so weird in this goofy comedy. That's so Canadian to take something that is totally commercial, like totally viable. Like, I mean, Bon Cop, Bad Cop, it's like Tony Scott and Michael Bay cluster fucking in the editing room. I mean, it's all overly stylized and well, I, I, totally an American film. I guess the same thing Hot Fuzz was making fun of, but then they inject something that's totally uncommercial right in the middle of it and just wallow in it for a good 20 minutes. And or for, for taking an example, the, the sex scene in Bon Cop, Bad Cop is so explicit. And when you're in like a Michael Bay action, Maybe movie, yeah, you want it. it, you want the, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the sort of overly lit, like the girl in transformers or whatever, but it, it stays very much PG it, mm-hmm. it, it just was horny teenager. Whereas in the Canadian movie, they go all the way with like you know, breasts right up in the camera and everything. That's Canadian, and Jay's and, and they definitely just definitely going to see it now. <laughs> um, but like with uh, with Bruce McDonald's films, it reminds me of something like Owning Mahoney, where you don't think of that as a Canadian movie or anything, but. You know, it, a lot of the characters from Canada. Yeah. Some of it takes place in way. Canada. They go out of their way to show you that it's yeah. in Canada. But but it, you know, I don't really think of it that way. But it's the same with the Bruce McDonald movies. It just so happens that the band is from Canada and they're touring Canada. And it's he he hides doesn't hide. He doesn't exploit Canada really, but he exploits Canada like yeah he shows so much of Canada like a, a literal map of Canada with the the line going through it but it could be a map of you know northern Minnesota yeah it, it doesn't matter um everything else is just so good in it so I I mean I kind of got the same thing with this one um just the acting you know the the actors were very Canadian to me that was the only thing that really gave it away um but I, I don't know the I the cab driver at first annoyed me a little bit, but then I kind of warmed up to him, and I, I like the scene where he was talking with the kids and um, passes the the gift on to uh, Joy Ramone and says, "A little man gave this to me." <laughs> well, another road movie. Kids, by the way. Oh, oh yeah. really? Um, another movie uh, that really does the road premise very well is the two lane blacktop. <laughs> which mm-hmm. is just, it's, it's just all texture, right? There's no movie there. It's just pure texture of on the road. And the connection of roadkill to Tulane blacktop is, um, before, um, Valerie, uh, sets out on her cause she can't drive. She's living with her parents. Um, those are her parents in the movie, but they look like so real. It reminds me of the scene in, Tulane Blacktop, where the hitchhiker girl gets out of the car and just starts going and bumming change off people, which, of course, they just did that and filmed it. And so they Mm -hmm. were real people. And just watching her parents in that scene in the living room is so bloody Canadian when I look at it. it, To me, anyway, Mm -hmm. it just it feels like all of my friends' parents when I when I grew up in Oshawa. Yeah. Okay. well, um, I don't know. Do we have anything else? uh say about roadkill or do we want to move on i have one more punk trivia bit with roadkill is uh roadkill won the best canadian feature not the best first canadian feature the best canadian feature it's sort of like sarah Pauly winning with away from her which was her first full feature film and she beat out david cronenberg and adam mcgoyan and, and i mean bruce uh, mcdonald won this at tiff and there was a 15 thousand maybe it was twenty five thousand dollar cash prize and when they gave him the cash prize at the uh, press conference he said i'm gonna go out and buy a big chunk of hash and to a large extent 
he did do that. So <laughs> it just fully carries over with the uh, with the uh, punk aesthetic of the movie. Irresponsible. <laughs> um. All right. Well. Um. So yeah, our other uh, movie that we're going to discuss is uh, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. Pretty. Um, well known in at least by name i would say um you know there was a band named after the movie and um you know you mentioned uh quentin tarantino's connection to bruce mcdonald and i believe if i'm not mistaken i think this may have actually been why marina kind of threw it in the the list of choices was there not a rumor that tarantino wanted to remake this this film Not only that, more importantly, I I would think um, this movie came to be watched by a number of people or at least made its way in some level of trash canon of films uh, because John Waters, the ultimate trash filmmaker, Pink Flamingos, all the way up to um, Serial Mom. And uh, and what what was the one he made uh, just recently with Johnny Knoxville and Tracy Ullman? Oh, uh, yeah, I forget what I'm drawing a blank. Anyway, uh, he, uh, he declared that as his favorite film sometime in the eighties or, or, or before I found personally that it's a film that everyone seems to know the name, but no one has actually watched the movie. Well, yeah. And, and when we sat down to, to try and watch it, I mean, it wasn't the easiest one to come by. Um, I guess, you know, there's you can obtain it in various ways on the internet, but as far as DVD releases, they're uh, not not as easy to find right now. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, looking on IMDb right here, user comments. This is the Citizen Kane of trash cinema, is what he says. Um, but so it's directed by Russ Meyer, who um, you know, I guess. The, the big thing is he's known for movies with women with large breasts, for one thing. And um, that certainly carries through in this movie. Now, is this his most well-known film, would you say? Or um, are there others that are... Uh, oh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which was written by Roger Ebert, right. is, uh, is pretty well-known and got a very big DVD release. Uh, not so recent or recently. And uh, he made a bunch of uh, softcore, like skin flicks... Uh, that's what he did, it, which is funny because Past, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, which at least title-wise is probably his most known film, is uh, has no nudity in it whatsoever. It's it's actually fairly tame. E- the sex scenes in the movie are very, very tame, like by those standards, probably even by the standards in, in 1964 or um, when it was made. Um, yeah, well, that's for sure one thing that struck me about the film is I kind of expected just, I guess, by reputation, uh, there to be a little bit more gratuitous uh, nudity and things like this, and it, it wasn't there, um, But uh, which is not to say it's not an enjoyable watch. It absolutely is. There's lots of gratuitous catfighting. Yeah. Uh, there's lots of scenes that felt like, let's just have two girls fight. <laughs> Especially the opening, the first 15 minutes. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. It seems almost like the first 15 minutes, they just started by saying, that's what we need. Let's just do that. And then a story built, you know, it <laughs> yeah, eventually yeah. formed. It's but. not a long movie, but you're right. There's a lot of filler. Although the opening opening with the reefer madness esque voiceover narration, which is awesome. They even have the uh, waveforms yeah, on the screen. Part. And they have them vertically, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> like like a race, like a, like a highway. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the opening credits, which obviously um, uh, Robert Rodriguez mm-hmm. paid extreme homage to in, uh, in Planet Terror with the, uh, with the go-go dancing. And then uh, what Rodriguez didn't do uh, and what Meyer does is give this tacit audience thing because he has these men, these sh- they're almost like they're in the fifth dimension of space, <laughs> just ogling obviously ogling these women and it, it the way that shot this to me is more of a comic book movie than almost all the comic book movies i've ever seen this is like the ultimate comic book well that's film. one that reminds me of a point i was thinking of while watching it is the characters like the the go-go dancers reminded me of like a 
uh, Josie and the Pussy, Pussycats or Scooby-Doo, like a Hanna-Barbera group of characters. And this happened to be one of the adventures that they're getting into. I mean, it obviously ends a little more brutally than, you know, that a cartoon like that would. But um, it just it felt like an almost an episodic kind of thing where this just happens to be one of their misadventures. Um, but like the, uh, the, the whole thing that it it surprised me because I thought I was going to get into watching something that I would find enjoyment out of because of its, you know, kind of kitschiness, I guess maybe that's not the right word, but you know, just the appreciation of older films that really, um, play on, on, on certain styles and whatnot, like a surf film or something, or, or like, uh, something that like psycho beach party was kind of yeah, trying yeah, to yeah, parody, the gidget, but the gidget thing. Yeah. But this actually had me like I, the first 15 minutes, like I said, was just girls with massive cleavage rolling around on the ground. But once the story started, which, you know, the story, the way it gets started is completely unbelievable and a little ridiculous, but once it starts, I, I was not sitting there, you know, mindful of this being trash and being, you know, from the sixties and, you know, the, the soundtrack and everything I was in the story enjoying it. And it kind of reminded me of, uh, uh, like a weird twist on, on a, like a tamer Texas chainsaw massacre. Huge. Yeah. Absolutely. On the same thing, particularly the dinner sequence, which feels yeah. identical to and this predates Texas Chainsaw Massacre oh, yeah, by, yeah. by a decade, uh, but that scene is almost identical. It's 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 quite impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's it, I was completely uh, kind of like it was the first time I'd seen it, and I'd ob- obviously heard about it, and I was expecting just a lot of nudity and and <laughs> uh, scenes of violence, and there is some violence. There's not that much, maybe for the time, I guess, but. I was completely into the story, uh, which was, you know, good. Well, I think the other thing, too, is, like, the movie is campy in a certain way, but um, I don't think it's, like, unintentionally campy. Like, it's it's intentionally campy the way it is. The way every actress, particularly the uh, the lead actress, like Atulas and Satana, uh, the way she shouts yeah. every line of dialogue <laughs> is is awesome it, it absolutely like why did like the the dialogue itself is pretty expository or, or pretty banal but the way it's delivered mm-hmm. the way they con like the way they, they they converse by shouting at each other and even the characters on the farm like the the son and the, the brother that gives it such an like a joyfully artificial but it, it's intentional. It's not by. It's not bad acting. That was intentionally the way it had to be, in, because it's carried off so well. That made the movie a total joy, and it amplified because it felt like a comic book movie in the sense that they were shouting the cloud bubbles that mm-hmm. you would have in a. You know, you, you have to be to the point because you've only got so much space in a in a comic frame, yeah. uh, and to do that visually in a movie. Now, I don't know if that was their intention or not, uh, but in hindsight now it 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 works mm-hmm. not to mention that italian chick who is my favorite one her just ridiculous accent french canadian she is by the way i mean <laughs> just that's all right a sponge i'm gonna wring you out <laughs> yeah, yeah like it's just ridiculous but it, it it works within the context of um what you're saying that there's it's uh i like jay's kind of like scooby-doo clan well, I, yeah, one of the like the the lead actress is Japanese, and um, the and then you, the Italian actress is actually French Canadian, and then the um, uh, the hostage is Jewish, and the uh, the blonde is all American blonde. I mean, mm-hmm. it is a it is an international mix, mm-hmm. and it, I mean you could say maybe. Uh, it might have too many villains, but I, I didn't have a problem with that. Like confused kind of, it was hard to choose who you're rooting for because you should uh, essentially the, the main victim is the girl, right? Um, 
but then, you know, you have uh, the go-go dancers, which you're kind of rooting for as the anti-heroes kind of thing. And then there's the, the old man, his, and his two sons and the one son that's not the muscle bound mental guy. Um, the other son seems like a good guy, you know, I was, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you bring up a good point. Cause that was something I was going to ask is like, who were, or, you know, personally, who was each person as you watched the movie, who were you rooting for? Because, um, I think that that's an interesting comment on kind of what this movie is getting at because like, you know, a lot of people would bring this up as like a, like a feminist film. Cause you know, you have these powerful females and all the, the guys in the movie are dumb and like, you know, easily taken advantage of and whatnot. But on the other hand, it's a movie about these women with huge breasts and they're, you know, throwing it in your face. And it's, it's very much also about like, uh, objectifying the women, I guess. So I don't know. What did you guys think about that? I liked the, we're mad as hell and we're going to take it out on everyone around us. I mean, there's one point where the girl, the young girl, the vi- the supposed victim, who I didn't care for at all. I, you know, if she died or lived or anything, it was completely irrelevant to me. Um, she was just too dumb to live. I maybe I've been sensitive, <laughs> but uh, but anyway, when she offers them a soft drink, and then the, the Andrew's favorite girl there with the Italian accent, no, we like everything hard. You know, like, I mean, <laughs> yeah. th- okay, that's a uh, like it's a sexual innuendo, but at the same time, these women make all of their Every interaction, whether their car is being gassed up, whether they're going to decide what they're going to do for the day, everything is a fight. There's never a point when anyone relaxes, even when uh, each of the women seduce one of the men on the farm. It's very aggressive. And I like the the way Meyer spun the aggressive male persona and spun it on the female and does not ever ever go out of his way to make any of them sympathetic or overtly needy. Like they are completely, they're their own empowerment and then they're their own undoing. I, I, I like that there, there's no apology ever. I mean, for any of the characters. And I like that. I, I wasn't rooting for anyone. I just, I was watching the harder, more judgmental elements of society just collide at each other and the train wreck that that turns into, and which is exactly what it is. The movie has somewhat of a Hollywood ending, I guess, but, but it never felt like that until you got there. I mean, mm-hmm. I suppose they had to end it somehow and they didn't want to take the ultimate college film ending. So, <laughs> so they, uh, Yeah. Well, I, I think it's kind of a shame that Marina isn't in on this because I would love to hear her take. But I was sort of in the same same frame of mind as Jay. Like, I, I knew nothing about this movie, really, other than the title. And so the first 10 or 15 minutes, I'm like, all oh, right, this is awesome. It's chicks, hot chicks with big tits and rolling around. In the... And then I realized these three women, by the way, I was totally rooting for them. I, I don't know if rooting is the right word, but... These are the three characters I was most interested in. I, I'm with Kurt. I didn't care about the victim girl. The, the guys on the farm were just kind of annoying, and I was, to, I was totally rooting for these tricks. But anyway, these are three characters that I don't think I've ever seen um, female characters, or any characters for that matter, that are, that are quite like this before. Yeah, this this isn't Kill Bill. This isn't even Tank Girl, uh, where you where the the women have some level of motivation for why they become Charles Bronson um, or you're the brave one or whatever. No, they are, they are assholes right from moment one. Right. I, I was like, Oh my God, these chicks are hot. I would love to, you know, hit on them or whatever. Then, I, <laughs> then as it went on, I was like, Oh, I don't really want to have anything to do with these. Women. Um, but I loved watching. See, I was the opposite. <laughs> I started off with like no interest, and once the killing started, I was like, "Man, this is good. I need that." Yeah, I, I, these were great characters, and I just I see this. I was totally into them, and not you know. I mean, yes, it was hard to not look at the cleavage for the entire movie, but beyond that, I was looking at these women as really great characters, unlike anything I've ever seen. 
and you know these these characters are are horrible people and this is uh one of those movies um like i I remember when we we were having a conversation in the comments on row three i think it was for it it was having to do with violence and film it was a pretty long-winded uh conversation and this is one of those movies that i'm glad that you know not every movie the character has to turn to the the camera and be like you know judge me for <laughs> enjoying watching the women uh randomly you know break a yeah, guy's yeah, there's back no um other than the obvious artificiality of of the mm-hmm. way the movie's framed and and shot uh there's no um there's no meta aspect yeah. here it just it is what it is it's looking to satisfy the id of both men and women. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's actually a, a reasonably gender-free, for all of its feminine readings 40 years after the fact, it's actually a gender-free movie. I, I think that there's many elements that would appeal or turn off both genders. I, I don't mm-hmm. think it's, it's, it's not an easy one to qualify in terms of gender types. Mm-hmm. Well, here's something kind of interesting, because um, Roger Ebert wrote a review of this, I guess, um, a while ago. Um, and uh, he says at the very end, uh, he says that Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone, Jean-Claude Van Damme, and Steven Seagal play more or less the same characters without the bras, of course. And I thought that was kind of interesting because, like, obviously that's what the 80s was, was these action movies with these huge guys and everything. But when you think about action movies today a lot of the the action movies that are aimed at like you know the 18 to 25 male have female uh action stars now and you know really if you look at it that way this movie is kind of one of the starting points for that i would say well i would argue that a huge chunk of the female avenging angel in american cinema is japanese cinema filtering over and and Chinese wuja films which I mean if you go all the way back to the mid 60s with um, uh, Come Drink With Me which was uh, Pepe Chang's first film and she's not quite the main character but when you when you watch the movie she's the most compelling thing to watch in the movie uh, they split her up with this guy but for the most part it's all her and um and that I think a lot of that is 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 Oriental culture filtering into. But at the same time, I, I love the fact that this movie is does feel like it's way ahead of its time. Well, I also think a big part of it is the fact that the John Wayne esque hero is now passe. Um, I I think that you know that's I always say that's one of the main reasons I love John Carpenter is he he refuses to be in style. And stubbornly remains, you know, making these films with these heroes that are completely out of touch with anything, you know, going on nowadays. While, you know, we've got TV writers like, uh, was it Kevin Williamson, right, who wrote Scream and The Faculty and all Mm -hmm. that, creating basically the teenage hero, uh, John Carpenter, and people like him, old school people, were still making films that had like a John Wayne hero. And people didn't want that. Or or Tony Gilroy, who who wrote um, the Bourne Identity films, and Michael Clayton, where the heroes are undeniably metrosexual. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. like they're they're not they're not beefcake. Yeah. They're they're they're, they're um, you know just competent, well dressed, sort of mm-hmm. smart. They're not the uh, the eighties seems to be a bit of an anomaly, and that the uh, the heroes were like steroidal nightmares Mm -hmm. like gigantic guys that just sort of kicked ass yeah and i mean i i saw that in uh land of the dead as well which i know a lot of people didn't like and i I actually liked it to a degree but one thing i did like was the hero in that just that he was so typical and it's a hero like that that i think is completely out of style nowadays that you know teens 50s 60s yeah teens don't connect with someone like that at all they would connect more a male a teen male would rather see mila jovovich uh kicking ass than james woods (laughs) at this point i think um so i think a part of it is that as well um 
My favorite. One I of my, just want to see men. <laughs> men. <laughs> one of my favorite things about Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, though, is the snap timing of some of like it, it almost has a Marx Brothers and maybe some people will spin in their grave or, 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 or just flip with that statement. But I found some of the way that the dialogue is shouted and it's very snappy. It's, it's much faster paced than a modern movie spits dialogue at you. And there's a, the scene where they're at the gas attendant and he's filling up the car and he's just nattering on about, seeing because they're driving their cars in and 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 she has a european car and like about seeing the united states and see and 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 traveling and and seeing what there is and as he's doing this his eyes like like any guy watching the movie probably most girls watching the movie you can't avoid this the cleavage in this movie (laughs) and he's wandering down and he's like and then she just has this right in mid-sentence you're not gonna find america down there columbus i just (laughs) it just it uh, there's about uh, 10 15 instances in the movie where or like where where he i think one of the the, the racing guy at the beginning asks uh the, the 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 lead the head of the gang or whatever you know what's your point and and she's like the point of no return and you've just reached it like it's just really snappy the it's way like, uh it's like the archies only with a, a mean-spirited Archie's yeah, comic. Again, a comic. Again, the comic yeah. connection, uh, the snappiness of it. It's it's not even close to aiming for real dialogue. And I know many people criticize, say, Juno of having blatantly artificial dialogue. But Juno is trying to graft artificial dialogue onto a reasonably realistic scenario. And Meyer just, he is shooting for the moon with fantasy you know uh sort of boy fantasy mm-hmm. craziness and and so the artificial dialogue just enhances the rest of the movie i i loved it i there's a, like you know when they're when they're rustling or going around or when they're driving through the farm and whatever i actually want i love the dialogue element of the movie I, anytime the girls were trying to decide and they don't talk they just shout at each other but it's compelling the way they um, the way they do that, and all of the typical like male schoolyard or prison yard posturing being done by women, which is true in real life. I mean, people are people, and they posture and they have their own ego that they and, and self image that they try to project outward to everyone else. The way this is like taken up to eleven in this movie, I, I love that aspect. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, one other thing that uh i don't know if this is kind of like being a dead horse or whatever but like uh with regards to kind of like the the i guess the gender role reversal stuff that's going on in this movie i mean i like the fact that there's a such a big focus on the cars in this because you know cars are always a big guy thing and and right off the bat you've got these these girls like racing cars and stuff like that and um you know, it's just, I, I think it really works on that level. Like it's, it is very much an empowerment of, of women. But the thing, thing, the thing that's interesting is the women aren't that attractive. Like they, they are big chested and, but like the way their makeup is done, they're, they're purposely made to look a certain way. Like they, well, they aren't made to look these aren't you know uh the same way that the 80s action stars were bloated beyond any yeah, reasonable proportion they're That's, not princesses out there they're no they're purposely made to look like they're not Uma machines. Thurman and Kill Bill <laughs> yeah. by yeah. any stretch of the imagination although on that one thing that you said I have to just while it's fresh on my brain I have to throw it out there the 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 car as like a phallic symbol the the that that culminates in the movie when the uh when the lead character essentially fucks the guy like yeah and he's just it's like he's being raped uh he's just resisting uh with everything that he's got he's a strong guy he's holding the car back but the way they show her thrusting with her body and and on the gas and the way they show the car grinding up against him it, it's it's incredibly sexual you can't miss it i mean it's underscored bolded and the font raised to as big as you can it's it's pretty loud and clear the thing i like best about that scene is he won against the car (laughs) i mean i was saying okay she's gonna crush him but the fact that he held the car back and then flops over i mean that that was awesome yeah um andrew any uh final thoughts over there 
Nope. I freaking love this movie. And that's... Otherwise, I think we've covered it. Well, it says something that I watched it twice before recording. I... I uh, it's a movie I, I had not seen it before we recorded it. Uh, um, I mean, I'd seen the scene where all the women at the beginning kill the 60s Gidget hunk because that that scene was uh, although I'd seen it before that. But my, my first thought when I watched Death Proof was the scene when they take out Kurt Russell at the end of Death Proof. It, that's all I was thinking when I saw that end scene was, oh, my God, he, he's a, he doesn't need to remake Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, which, mm-hmm. of course, the announcement came out far after that because he did it with that scene right then and there. And so that was the only scene that I'd seen before the movie. When I, like when I put it all together and saw everything, I was like, Jay, I, I'm like, this is a compelling movie by any yardstick. And yeah, I was gunned to watch it again and again. And the fact that it's only like 80 minutes long, it just, it gets in and it gets done what it's done. It has that 10 minutes of filler, which I suppose could be excised, but then it also has that. I don't know. Uh, I, I, I like the um, Vincent Gallo's The Brown Bunny for the same reason is that there's like a lot of just open landscape like it's it's filler but Jerry's the same way but and I can't believe I'm comparing Faster Kill Pastor Pussycat Kill Kill to Jerry but it just showing these endless scenes of open space and then the people within the space even if they're not doing anything or even if they're rustling in the in the ground that adds something to me visually. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a very striking, it's a very compelling. So even though it is kind of filler at the beginning or like when they stop off and just go for a swim arbitrarily, it, it is adding a lot of texture before the movie gets going. And, and I think that's valuable and it's something that is far too often cut out of is the same with the passion play sequence in, in, in roadkill, a modern movie excises all that. It's like, get, let's get to the goods right away and uh but it's kind of funny because in some ways that's that's what the beginning of faster pussycat kill kill was was like here's the goods you came for <laughs> okay. for like 10 or 15 yeah, we've got minutes, that out of the then, way now we can do something and and i think the sign of a good movie actually is to is to draw you in with a certain set of expectations and then throw them up in the air and annihilate them in front of you and then you actually end up with something that you didn't necessarily expect or want going in but a good filmmaker can promise one thing deny you that promise and give you something so much better and when the filmmaker just panders and gives you exactly what you think you're going to get i generally find myself less satisfied and in 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 grindhouse it's the ultimate example i mean robert rodriguez panders to exactly what you think you should be getting um uh, in the movie, more or less, and then Quentin Tarantino does not. He 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 actually goes incredibly out of his way to deny you what you think the movie is going to be in, in, on about five different levels, uh, and that's why I think that's the better feature. But it should be stated very clearly that Grindhouse, both parts of Grindhouse, owe massive debts to this film. Like mm-hmm. it's referenced many as much as Planet Terror is. John Carpenter and and mm-hmm. and uh, Death Proof is you know Tulane Blacktop and and um, Vanishing Point and 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 whatnot. Faster Pussycat is woven entirely through that because it's the grandmother of uh, of of exploitive trash film. Yeah. Um, Tarantino note: I was going to say I, I, I'm as usual. I'm not really behind getting behind a remake of this. However, you know if somebody's going to remake it. Tarantino's the guy to do it. Or John Waters. <laughs> it, it could be very cool. That's originally what I had thought that it was, uh, when I said Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it was a, a John Waters version of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And it, it's funny because I, I think of this kind of similarly as when we watched uh, The Last Man on Earth, uh, that that you know, movie is kind of spawned Night of the Living Dead and all of these sorts of films where this one I, I now look at Texas Chainsaw Massacre and those types of films like People Under the Stairs yeah, and whatnot. Absolutely. Where it's like someone gets caught up in this, you know, wild group of people, gets trapped in some location, and even to the point where, you know, she escapes, is picked up by the guy and, and then back. finds out 
he's the the son you know and there's that big musical cue when she just like you know like it's not a surprise to you but when he says he's my father it's like and she's like no funny games actually like the whole thing where you know like she's waiting and expecting him to come back and she's out on the the road and all that like it just for some reason Mm -hmm. just or goonies when chunk gets picked up by the italian yeah when he escapes <laughs> but like that that whole genre of, of film kind of seems to owe something to this movie as well which i didn't think there would be a connection to something like that like to a horror kind of genre i thought this was going to be pure trash sexploitation you know um yeah the texas chainsaw massacre thing it, 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 that's a perfect way to say it. it it is exactly like last man on earth Mm-hmm. sort of enlightened the George A. Romero films and it, when you look back on everything in hindsight it's like wow look at all the praise that was heaped on this yeah. movie when it when it is so obviously extending on the theme from this movie why isn't this movie getting the yeah. original tag like Last Man on Earth or or in this case Faster Pussycat I just think in Texas Ch- Chainsaw Massacre the famous shot of the girl's ass as she approaches the house where it goes right under the swing like completely, I I can think of a specific shot in Faster Pussycat Kill Kill where it's not completely the same shot, but there is a shot where the blonde girl, I think when the guy is in the barn and she comes to me, it's either before or after they meet, it's just clearly her ass right in the camera. So there is that sort of glorification of the, the ass in Texas Chainsaw <laughs> Massacre. I mean, it's clearly, you know, horror films take women and put them through hell. And I guess that's the one thing that, you know, faster pussycat kill kill has that, you know, the both sides of male and female fighting against each other with that one girl in the middle. But, um, you know, that, like you said, that dinner scene where the girl is just losing it with all this madness around her, everyone's sort of fighting and, and, and the and, father is yep. in a wheelchair yep. and like, Oh, I know uh, the, the brother is mental. You yep, know, <laughs> I know it's, it's, it's quite incredible. Yeah. Yeah. But the last thing I wanted to mention, though, is I loved how, uh, I mean, just from a form point of view, I love all the different places that Russ Meyer managed to plant the camera. Because you get the sense that this was a on-the-fly, cheapo production. You generally don't think, like, setups would be, there would be a lot of attention to uh, setup and detail. If you look at the driving scenes, the sophistication, like the, wheel. the sophistication of the way mm. everything is framed in that is really, really nice. And it added another element of you expect to be watching pure sleazo trash. And like, this is very considered filmmaking in its own way. And I, when a movie surprises me, like on that level, I, I, I always, you know, give it a few extra points. Well, that's what you get when you just, you know, rather than doing it the hard way, you just park a car and shoot someone shaking in it. <laughs> you can get as many angles as you want. But yeah, I, I specifically remember through the steering yep. wheel, which there's a shot like that in, in the first Evil Dead film. And the first thing I think of is how the fuck did they get the film camera yeah. down there? Because in a Hollywood production, they would have a car that's split in half. And, yep. you know, obviously they didn't split a car in half for this. So, there's some creative filmmaking there, but I mean, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's just a, a perfect kind of, I guess you could sum up that genre with in regards to Texas Chainsaw Massacre and, and people under the stairs and whatnot as like the dysfunctional family, where someone gets wrapped up in a dysfunctional family that has all these weird members and last house on the left. Yeah. Yeah. So it's cool to see kind of something that even if it's not recognized as a starting point for that subgenre um it's clear to us anyways that it, it seems like there's some uh you know it deserves some credit for that yep um all right well um i guess uh we'll wrap things up then for this uh, particular episode of the movie club podcast now uh looking towards the next episode i believe we have two titles chosen uh, now, the top vote-getter uh, on the website at uh, www.movieclubpodcast.com uh, was The Ice Storm, directed by Ang Lee. Which um, So we're going to do that. And then uh, wh- what's the other one we've chosen? Was it Crazy? Yep. Um, 
which is another Canadian film, but uh, um, we're going to throw that one in the mix. Now, um, Andrew, did you want to explain the, uh, the the system we're going to go with from here on in, I guess, for the yeah, listeners? Sure. Um, yeah, a couple of people have mentioned to me that they're not sure exactly how we come about choosing what movies we're going to do. So what we sort of decided on is every month we will take the top vote together uh, at the moviecallpodcast.com which in this case is the ice storm. Um, and then for the second one, we just sort of, between the five of us discussing the movie, we kind of just pick something at random, don't we? We just kind of discuss and maybe we'll grab something off the, uh, off the vote board. Maybe there's something that ties in well with the ice storm uh, or what have you, something that we really want to do and we'll pull that off. Um, and then what we what we'll do as far as the voting each week, what what will be available on the ballot, um, we'll keep. Besides the one that we do, we'll keep the top four vote getters. On, on the on the thing, for next month. For, for next month, right? And then uh, and then each of us chooses another title to throw on there. So there should always be ten, um, ten possible titles to vote on. And this we'll way, take the top vote getter. If, if someone, if people are really pushing for a title that keeps slipping out, it should, we should get to it eventually then, because it'll, if it keeps getting votes, it'll always remain in the top four, right? Yeah. That's right. And so for, for next month, I mean, we picked the ice storm already. So then the next, uh, the next four top vote getters were five easy pieces, paradise lost Two revelations, alphaville and code 46. So those four will still be available. You can vote on them. And then the five of us, uh, Sean, Jay, Kurt, myself, and Marina, will all throw out one more title on that ballot. So uh, definitely head over there and vote on which one you want to watch and discuss with us. Yep. And, uh, of course, um, be sure to head over to the website at uh, movieclubpodcast.com and join in the the discussion. We really want to encourage people to watch the movies, listen to the podcast, and then jump in with your own thoughts and, uh, you know, just uh, keep the whole thing going. And don't be afraid to, you know, I I imagine most people uh, who are watching the movie either have seen it recently or even if you've gone back to an archive show and you know watch the movie and then listen to the show uh, we do scan the comments for all of the previous shows too if you've got two cents to add in there and uh, i'm sure it's not difficult to re-stimulate conversation that's uh, in the comment section there yep yeah like if anyone has recently watched lady in the water and decided it actually was awesome Highly unlikely, but possible. Jay will send you your $5 (laughs) Tim Horton coupons in the mail (laughs) for siding with him. Um, And yes, I guess we're hoping next month Marina will be back with us once again. Um, So um, I guess that's it. So thanks for listening. And uh, we'll see you guys next time here on the Movie Club Podcast. Podcast.